the old pilot's plain tales. RAF Form 414, Volume 8. It's starting to look its age. It's frayed at the edges, wrinkled, and has bits that might fall off. No, not me, my venerable old Royal Air Force logbook. So before it comes apart completely, I think it might be time to punish you again with a few more stories from its pages. I left you last time after the tale of my embarrassing missile-firing debrief, which had brought me back down to earth from the euphoria of launching a rocket-powered telegraph pole with quite a bang. I didn't have much of a career to ruin, so at that point, no damage done. The year was 1980, and I was on my first tour of duty with No. 43 Squadron flying the marvellous F-4 Phantom, but then you know that. After the excitement of my first firing, it was back to the more important but rather tedious training that we regularly undertook, such as electronic countermeasures. Since our ability to strike terror into the hearts of bomber pilots everywhere depended a great deal on the capability of the enormous air-intercept radar that wagged away in the Phantom's nose, a common tactic of theirs was to cheat and try to jam it. We would level the playing field by devising tactics to counter their dishonesty, but one aircraft I flew against left me amazed. The United States Air Force EC-130. This American Special Forces transport was designed for nighttime skullduggery, when they would drop their cargo of ninja assassins whilst protecting themselves by jamming the hell out of any and every radar threat. So Budgie and I eagerly roared off over the North Sea on a mission to search out this special fat Albert with all its extra lumps, bumps and sticky out bits. Before long, Budgie, head down, stirring the green soup of his radar display, mumbling something like, Double, double, toil and trouble, eye of Newton, toe of frog, when he spotted our foe and gleefully locked them up so I could dispatch a nice shiny rocket-powered telegraph pole their way. The crew of the Hercules were apparently a bit unhappy at this, and the front of my phantom reverberated with a mighty clang as they decoyed our radar off themselves with such speed that the scanner smacked against the end stops. Each time Budgie tried for a lock, the same thing happened, and now the original blip had been replaced by multiple targets dodging around like a manic pinball machine. Curses, we both cried. We should have added more root of hemlock. But not to be outdone, we homed in on their emissions until I saw the dastardly radar wrecker and tried to hoof around the back for a sidewinder shot. Refusing to give in, the EC-130 decoyed the infrared head of our heat-seeking death pole, whilst the pilot stood his dumpy machine on its wingtip and span it around and around in circles. Not to be outdone, I did some pilot stuff myself and rocketed up above him where he would find it hard to keep me in sight. Coming back down, I lined him up in the gun sight and hosed him down with a stream of imaginary 20mm cannon shells, 
You can't decoy a bullet, I said, but they replied, Try doing that in the dark, son. Being of youthful appearance, I was frequently referred to by my squadron colleagues as the boy pilot, which was perhaps why I was picked to take part in my next mission of note, the Blue Peter Special. For those unfortunate enough to have missed an opportunity to grow up in Britain, Blue Peter is the longest-running children's TV show in the world, having started in 1958. A live entertainment show for kids, it features celebrity interviews, competitions, challenges and such. And in 1980, they were holding a contest to name the latest member of the RAF's number 8 squadron, its new mascot. 8 Squadron flew an aircraft often referred to as 20,000 rivets flying in a loose formation, the ancient Shackleton. An airborne early warning aircraft, it lumbered around like a World War II museum piece but was still part of the Air Force's inventory, despite each aircraft being named after a character from another children's show, The Magic Roundabout. Its job of early warning was difficult, as it was built for a different era, and I always thought that the first giveaway from the old shack that the enemy was coming would be when they stopped talking. A bright and shiny eagle owl had been donated to the squadron to replace an earlier bird that was no more. Deceased, bereft of life, it had passed on, was pushing up the daisies, kicked the bucket, shuffled off his mortal coil, run down the curtain and joined the choir invisible. It was an ex-er-owl. The BBC, in its wisdom, had decided to film the oil-dripping Shackleton's and even get their presenters up for a mission, controlling fighters. Enter 43 Squadron from stage left with a pair of phantoms. The inimitable John Spore with yours truly on his wing. We cracked off into the play area and butted heads at the behest of the fighter controllers on board, and then spent a while formating on the cumbersome beast before landing at their base, Lossiemouth to meet the TV stars. We were duly presented with our much-treasured Blue Peter badges before launching off for a repeat, with the request not to use quite so much reheat this time, please, as the sound man couldn't cope. Then I see it was time for the trappers to visit. Not exactly what you might think, not a bunch of hairy mountain men wearing beaver caps and snowshoes heaving mounds of smelly animal skins around, but just about as welcome. Our trappers came from the Phantom Operational Conversion Unit and were a bunch of standards instructors who flew with a bunch of us to see if our squadron QFI was being lazy or not. They bought up their own two-sticker, an OCU aircraft with controls in the rear cockpit, put us in the front and ran us through our paces. I think I did okay in the air, but on the oral test afterwards, I was embarrassingly short of technical knowledge, and my understanding of the Phantom's limitations was unacceptably limited. 
As a punishment, I was given the task of presenting a lecture on the Phantom's limitations to the whole squadron on the next Friday ground training day. Apparently I showed some flair for standing up in front of people and gained some kudos from the boys by handing out edible treats for correct answers and ensuring that the junior chaps got easy questions like how many crew does an F4 hold and giving impossible ones to all the executives like how many bleed air holes are there in the intake ramp actually in the region of 12,500. I wish I hadn't done quite so well at this task, as I might have marked my card with the boss, who obviously held a grudge, and ensure that my next posting was to be a flying instructor. The QRA count of launches was mounting, and so was my count of live intercepts against the beast from the east, the Soviet bear. The two I intercepted with Budgie on the last day of March put my tally at twenty, and by now I was a proud member of the Ten Bear Club, twice over. We had another training session with the USAF Aggressor F5 Squadron out of Alconbury, this time two versus two setups, with me as a wingman with a more experienced pilot. Then as the summer progressed, it was again time to head for Cyprus and our annual six weeks in the sun, called the Armament Practice Camp. This time I was given an aircraft to take out and spent five hours forty minutes strapped to my Phantom whilst we tanked our way out the two and a half thousand miles to the little island in the Mediterranean. This was a time of political wrangling and dispute, particularly between the Greeks and the Turks, after the Cypriot War only a few years earlier when Turkey had invaded the island. It was now divided into two with the Greeks and our military bases to the south and the Turkish sector to the north with a UN peacekeeping force in between. To make things easier for everyone, we navigated our way down the Med along the lines of individual countries' airspace boundaries, not speaking to anyone. Our time in the sun was as gorgeous as usual, and our partying interspersed only occasionally by flying, which, apart from the gunnery, included a fly-past of the headquarters at Episcopi for the Queen's birthday celebrations there, and a mini Masex. This little exercise was for the benefit of our naval chums, who were floating past Cyprus at the time. We mounted an attack on the fleet in pairs, with one phantom acting as a bomber and the other as a missile fired at the ships. I was the missile, which had the added bonus of being given carte blanche to buzz the RN boats. As I belted in at around 600 knots, I pretended to be a very good missile by diving down to sea level and running as low as I could. Spying a suitably sized boat, I rattled past at deck height, thoroughly enjoying myself, but noticing how difficult it had been to get down to the height of the deck. After landing, I grabbed a copy of Jane's All the World's Paddle Ships and looked the boat up. It seems I had picked a frigate, not all that big, and the deck was actually only 30 feet above the waterline. 
Ah, that explained things, and I went away feeling suitably chastened. It might have been a good idea to have checked before the mission. Still, the Navy came close enough to shore for us to pay them a visit, and we duly sat in their wardroom, being introduced to their habit of saluting poop decks and their special beer. I recall that it had lots of X's in its name, and after a few pints, I had similar X's in my eyes. Good stuff, chaps. When it came time to head back home, I was again given one of our F4s to fly and we set off in a foreship with me last to roll. It was a pair's take-off, so after the first pair rolled, we took to the runway and I parked on the wing of my leader. He wound a finger in the air, so I powered up those mighty Rolls-Royce spays and checked the gauges. All good, so when my lead pilot nodded his head, I released the brakes and went to full dry power. A second signal and we both engaged reheat. I scanned forward down the runway and then across to the lead aircraft, keeping my position. With the stick hard back, as the nose came up, it was just a matter of checking forward a little and then letting the aircraft leave the ground. Airborne and another signal for gear up. I looked in for half a second to find the big gear knob and then, on the nod of his head, I whipped it up and my hand was back onto the throttles to keep in position. But there was a bit of a problem. With full reheat, I was dropping back, and I couldn't hear the usual thumping of the undercarriage settling into the wheel wells. A quick glance and I could see that the gear lever was up, but the indication still showed three little wheels. The gear was still down, and with all that drag I couldn't keep up, and what's more, I needed to keep the speed below 250 knots, the gear limiting speed. We pulled away and watched the other three aircraft continue to climb. They had a tanker to meet, so they weren't going to hang around for me. Andy in the back seat and I ran through the checklist and tried a few suggestions from the duty pilot, but there was nothing for it. I needed to get back on the ground. Once on the ground, I double-checked that there were no locks left in the undercarriage. The engineers went to work and then it was time to try again. We had tagged on to the final formation to go, so if it didn't work this time, we'd be stuck in Akrotiri. Off we went, and the crash of the nose wheel hitting the top of the bay with its usual thump was very satisfying, and I settled down to another five hours and fifty minutes of tedium and tanking. Back into the not-so-sunny Scotland... And in between QRA scrambles, I see us taking on Jaguars, F-104s, F-111s and Harriers. All very exciting. And up in the highlands of northern Scotland, there was no better flying than hunting down our prey amongst the lochs, glens and mountains of that remote and severe countryside that was on our doorstep. Burners lit, we would hammer around the granite cliffs that soared upwards to the peaks of Antiolach, the Mamors and Great Corries, and Ben Nevis itself, and then burst out over the flat plains and the great lakes like Loch Nanclar, which we Sassanacs had dubbed Pork Chop Lake. It wasn't all fun, though. Before long, September had arrived, and although I nabbed another couple of bears for my birthday, we were soon into exercise teamwork— 
a joint maritime NATO excise way out over the Atlantic. 25 hours in just five flights and a long way out over the ocean with little trade for us to play with, akin to just drilling holes in the sky for the sake of it, but something I'd have to get used to in years to come, just no coffee to keep us going and little opportunity to seek relief of any kind. Should our bladders get the best of us, we had but one option, the RAF Piddle Pack, formerly known as Bag Crew Relief. It was a sturdy plastic bag with a longish neck and a dried-out sponge inside. Having decided that it was impossible to carry on, it was quite a palaver to use. First we had to engage our rudimentary autopilot and then make the ejector seat handle between our legs safe as there would be a lot of activity down in that area. After unbuckling, there was a strap that ran right down the front of the groin that needed moving. We would start to delve inside layer after layer of protective clothing. This began with the immersion suit, a thick and unbending flight suit that became more or less waterproof after immersion in the sea. To get at the groin there was a zip and a velcro strip beneath which was a long rolled up tube. Unrolling it was only the first job, as beneath it was a thick acrolan pile onesie, and then underneath that the waistband of the G-suit, uh, through the Y of our long johns, and then the final personal underclothing of whatever style was preferred. Having located the appropriate appendage, it had to be encouraged back through all these layers and inserted into the neck of the piddle pack. This all had to be done by feel. It was just about impossible to see what was going on, but that was just the physical challenge. The mental barriers then had to be overcome. Having spent several hours trying not to pee, now we had to convince a reluctant bladder that it was safe to do so. And once that had been accomplished, we had other concerns. The bladder can hold a lot, and assuming the bag was big enough, we then had the problem of where to stow it. There was no approved pea storage built into the Phantom cockpit. Still, the pilot's difficulties were small when compared to those of a navigator. If they were sensible, they wouldn't let us know, but should they ask for a smooth ride so that they could pee, that was usually the last thing they got. Peeing upside down was a challenge that defeated most backseaters. Well, first and foremost, a Merry Christmas to you all. And if you enjoyed this story, then how about telling your friends about it on social media? Perhaps leave a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Plain Tales is, of course, a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find us there at airlinepilotguy.com.